0: Tonight we are going to begin a uh, a three part series that is entitled "To Be Continued," and I think that the the reason why this kind of popped into my heart and my spirit to teach to you guys is because you're reaching an age where you are beginning to formulate opinions and thoughts, and it, that that may. That, that are more of your own inspired thinking and thoughts. You're thinking for yourselves. You know, in the middle school age, they're still heavily influenced by parents and, and people that are older than them, and you guys are still obviously influenced by those people in your lives, but you're starting to think for yourself, and that can be both a blessing and a curse sometimes, and so tonight, we're going to begin this journey um, Dissecting the life of one of the most consistent men in the Old Testament. And um, I believe that he models a a life that is such a great example for myself and for people in your age demographic. Um, He's probably actually one of the most consistent people in the entire Bible, aside from Jesus. Um, He lived about 600 years before Jesus. This faithful man's name was Daniel. Daniel. Uh, Before we get into the reading of the word tonight, allow me to give you some historical context to this man, Daniel. The writing of Daniel dates back to approximately 605 years before Christ. There was a lot of political unrest in the area, and Jehoiakim, who was the king of Israel, was wavering in his political allegiance. He had decided that he would take a pro-Egyptian approach. Think about that for a second. Here we are, years after they were rescued from Egypt, and Israel's still trying to go back to Egypt. Come on, you guys. Can Can you imagine what God is thinking? Like, seriously, you just won't stop. You keep trying to go back to your past. I'm trying to keep you moving forward. And so he tries to take a pro-Egyptian position, and this caused him to turn his back on Babylon. There were two major powers at this time, Egypt and Babylon. They were kind of fighting over political supremacy. History would tell us that Nebuchadnezzar was fearful of this move as it would give way to Egypt taking over Judah, and it would cut off very important trade routes. So he decided that he would get there first, take over Jerusalem in order to block the Egyptians from their plans of disrupting those trade routes. This was a political decision fueled by a hunger for money, control, and power. So Jerusalem would indeed be taken over. Solomon's beautiful temple that he built and dedicated to the Lord would eventually be destroyed. And many were taken into what is called the Babylonian exile, while a few others were either killed or they were left behind to be ruled by a king of Nebuchadnezzar's choosing. Someone who would kind of act as a puppet. There have since been archaeological discoveries providing this massive or proving this massive takeover. Um, various pottery, jewels, and weaponry have been since discovered around Mount Zion, resting in a layer of ash beneath the earth, the earth's surface and they date back to the time of this takeover. So this is a very real, credible event, that there is proof today of it occurring. And so this gives strong credibility to Daniel's writings of this event. Which brings us to our text in Daniel chapter 1. We'll start with verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. That's a mouthful. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, And quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them. So that at the end of that time, they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. So, let's break this first section down that gives us the context for what we are reading. First of all, we see King Jehoiakim. We can clearly see that God was not happy with his sudden change in allegiance to Egypt. And so it says that God gave him over to Nebuchadnezzar. God was not happy with Jehoiakim's decision, and he gave him over to Nebuchadnezzar, and he would eventually die in that battle. The next thing we see are the temple goods. King Nebuchadnezzar, we'll just call him King Neb for short. King Neb did what every good pagan king did in those days. Does everybody know what the word pagan means? Yeah, you are anti-God. Okay, so King Neb did what every good pagan king did in those days. And what he did was he took valuables from Solomon's temple that were used to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That's our God. And he used these goods to worship his idols. This was common. It was kind of a slap in the face of the people that you just took over. All right. The more money and valuables your idols had stashed in their temples, the more powerful and significant your God was. That's how they viewed this. Next, we have the young captives found in verses 3 through 5. It displays that King Neb had further intentions with Judah, and that was to groom a group of young men in order to serve the kingdom. In 3 through 5, we saw that he, he instructed him to find children of Israel, some of the king's descendants, some nobles, some from different tribes. And he wanted them to be good-looking and gifted and full of wisdom and understanding and knowledge. And then he was going to give them special training. And among these strong, intelligent, admirable young men were four Hebrew boys named Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And what's the first thing that the king decides to do? Change Change their names. The first thing the king decides to do is change their names. This is significant because their names... Represented God. All you have to do, the, the, the most obvious ones is uh, uh, Daniel and Mishael. Because what's at the end of their names? El. El. All throughout the Hebrew, it was El, Elah, Elohim. Anything to do with El represented God. And so Daniel was God is my judge. And his name was changed to Belteshazzar, which in Daniel 4.8 says, His name is Belteshazzar according to the name of my God. That is straight from the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar. Hananiah meant God is gracious, and his name was changed to Shadrach, which meant tender. Then there's Mishael, which was who is like God. His name was changed to Meshach. That draws with force. So it had to represent some kind of a forceful, drawing God in the Babylonian Empire. Then Azariah, God has helped. His name was changed to Abednego. Did you know that that wasn't actually how the name was spelt? It meant servant of Nego. But the actual God was Nebo. So his name was technically Abed-Nebo. But the Hebrew writers didn't want to give any credit. To that name because it represented that God. So they misspelled it on purpose, Nego. So clearly, this is significant because Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do to these Hebrew boys what he did with their temple goods. He's trying to lever- to leverage these able-bodied young men to bring glory to himself and his idols. So he gives them names that no longer represent their God, but rather represent his gods and that same spirit that was behind all of this in Daniel's age is the same spirit that we are battling at this very moment we live in a world today that mirrors this Babylonian story so perfectly it's scary we are living in exile in a sense just like these Hebrew boys the world was created perfectly but since Adam and Eve this world has been cursed with sin and Satan is its ruler Our souls are trapped within these corrupt, mortal bodies, sinful bodies. There's political upheaval everywhere, and everyone has convinced themselves of being right. Can I get an amen? Amen. Everyone thinks they're right in culture today. The rulers of the darkness of this world would like nothing more than to kill, steal, and destroy, just like we see happening in our text and in the historical context behind it. He is constantly slapping new labels on everything and everyone as an attempt to corrupt God's structure and most precious creation called humanity. He wants to stuff you so full of this culture that you can't help but be blown about with every wind of doctrine. Last of all, he wants you to become so weighted down that you will give up your royal priesthood identity in order to live your best life now instead of in heaven The enemy wants you and I to cave to the fleshly, lustful, worldly lifestyle that so many are already committed to living. But I'm here to inform you tonight that you do not have to give way in the slightest to the lifestyle of this world. You can continue in 2022 to live for God, even though this world is unraveling before our very eyes. The question we must confront tonight is... How do we continue to live for God in exile? Let's take a closer look at the life of Daniel. Daniel was from the tribe of Judah. He wasn't brand new to serving God. Neither were the rest of these young men, quite frankly. They were smart, well-educated, well-established in their beliefs, which is what made them so valuable to this king. He was already looking for people who were already smart. They were already smart. Despite their, their history of commitment to serving God, Their faith would be challenged greatly in their new home. Everything they knew and practiced was seemingly out of the window in order to be groomed into idol-worshiping Babylonian puppets, the master of whom was the king. However, we can see later in this chapter that God had other plans. So, keeping in mind the king's plan to educate them, to feed him his delicacies, to give them wine to drink... Let's pick back up with Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8. This is a very crucial verse. But Daniel purposed, say that with me, purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Why would Daniel not eat? The king's delicacies. Well, there's a few different scenarios. The first one, and probably the, the first one that would come to your mind as well, is that there is the potential that the food did not meet Israelite law, right? They had very strict standards for what they could and could not eat. For example, they couldn't eat anything from a pig. Maybe there was some form of pork on the plate. Second, and this is what I think is the, the, most, uh, the strongest argument for this, is that this also could have been meat that was from animals that were sacrificed to the Babylonian gods. So eating it would have been tied to directly worshiping their gods. Wow. Thirdly, one could speculate that eating the food offered by the king would have been a representation of Daniel giving up and caving to the king's friendship symbolic of allowing himself to be indoctrinated with the babylonian culture no matter what the specific reason was i think they all play a role in this the bottom line is this food made daniel uncomfortable it represented the culture of the world he was living in and eating it would be as he described defiling his body hebrew word for defile is gal g-a-a-l to desecrate, pollute, or stain. Another word would be to violate or mar. He didn't want to violate himself. So the first lesson we learn from Daniel is that he was purposed in his heart. Another good word for that that I like to use is determined. He was determined in his heart not to violate himself. This was not a snap decision in the spur of a moment. If that were the case, it would have been game over. He would have been eating that food. No problem. No questions asked. He would have caved immediately. No, this was a well thought out, premeditated decision that was made from years of, of studying the word and serving his God. He knew where his faith was and he was secure in that faith. If you and I wait until something bad happens to start serving God, it's it's over. It's over. We can't wait till then. We need to start now while we can get momentum. This kind of determination is unwavering. Daniel's mind was made up long before captivity. This is my God, and I serve him. This determination keeps a Christian grounded. The temperature in the room might change, but I'm still on fire For God, a pandemic might come, but I'm in youth on a Wednesday night. My peers may do or say something offensive, but I will remain and I will not be offended. I'm here to stay. People may come and go that we love, but I'm not leaving. This is a not my soul mentality. How do I continue to live for God while I am in exile? It starts with being determined in your heart from this day forward who you serve. Joshua 23 and 15. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that were on the other side of the river. Joshua sees the repetition here. The other side of the river was Egypt. You want to go back to them? Go back to them. You want to go back to the past? Go back to the past. Or the gods of the Amorites, the land that they were dwelling in now. But he makes this defiant statement at the end. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I don't care what everyone else is doing. I don't care who you're serving. I don't care who clearly your God is, even though you claim to have the same God as me. I don't care. I'm serving the Lord. Period. End of story. So how do we know when we have this determination in our hearts? What is the proof? What are the signs? The proof is in the fruit. What's the fruit? Your lifestyle. Does the lifestyle you live reflect that of a person who has been completely transformed by the power of God? Daniel's was. That's why he was immovable in this area of his life. He would not cave to the Babylonian lifestyle. He was fully committed to a God-honoring lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And that was the proof. Mm -hmm. I believe that he recognizes that this food primarily represented their idolatrous gods. It represented their culture, their location. It represented their worship. And eating it would be a sign of accepting these things into his life And he's such a smart kid that he decides to strike up a deal with the chief of the eunuchs. Bringing us to Daniel 1 verse 12. Please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you. The appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. That's quite a deal. Vegetables and water? Yum. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if I could do that. So Ashpenaz was actually, he cautiously agreed to this deal. Because a few verses earlier, he was fearing for his head. He's like, this isn't a good deal. Vegetables and water? There's no way you're going to come out on the other side looking any better These are the commands from my king. I don't want to lose my life, my job. I don't want to lose anything. This is ridiculous. So then Daniel says, okay, 10 days. Give us 10 days, and and then you can deal with us as you see fit. So he agrees. Because a few verses earlier, the Bible says that God actually gave Daniel favor with this man. Favor ain't fair. But that favor would be very helpful. Which brings us to verse 15. And at the end of the 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. They gained 50 pounds. They were these big, chubby, round guys running around. No, just kidding. When it says says fatter, it just simply means healthier. You tell me, all right? You tell me. Should a change be visible within 10 days? Absolutely not. They were on this diet for 10 days and they already looked better and fatter in flesh. They already looked much healthier than the rest of the people. They didn't lose any of their good appearance, they looked far better. This could only be done by God. Not only did they look better, but God does something else in verse 17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and visions and dreams. The Lord blessed them and made them even more wise than the rest. And even gives, uh, gives Daniel a supernatural power of interpret- interpreting dreams. This should convince you to eat your vegetables, right? let's go we're all going on a 30-day fast let's go i'm interpreting dreams how remarkable is this all right how remarkable is this 10 days later you can interpret dreams that is the miraculous power of god daniel is clearly living out hebrews 11 6 but without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Daniel is diligently seeking God, even in a pagan world filled with lust, idolatry, and with every form of conflicting doctrine that you could possibly imagine. And yet he believes and trusts in his God, and God rewards him for it. Not because of how good Daniel was. That's where we always get it wrong. But because of how good God is it's never about how good you are it's about how good god is and the favor that he has placed on your life which brings us to verse 18 now at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before nebuchadnezzar Now, remember this was a three-year ordeal so when the days were completed this is three years later now they lived this lifestyle for three years straight. Imagine vegetables and water for three years straight. No way, Jose. Not me. I'm sorry. It ain't happening. It ain't happening. I would have been done. Verse 19. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better. Ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. Out of all the others that were brought into captivity alongside these Hebrew boys, they weren't the only ones. It was a big group of them. These were four out of the group. They were far more advanced than any other in their training. Again, we have another wild miracle here. It was one thing to be better than the rest of the people that you were brought in with, right? Because you're all starting on, it's a level playing field. You're all starting at the same point. You're not trying to make, make up ground in any way. You have similar knowledge, similar understanding, similar background in history. But to be 10 times better than the magicians and astrologers who had been studying the Chaldean languages and sciences for a lifetime trying to work their way up the corporate ladder to serve the king. And these four Hebrew boys come in like, and just blow them out of the water like it's nothing. And they're serving the king instead. That is a miracle. That is 100% a miracle. That's insane. God leveraged what was meant to manipulate and seduce an entire nation... and he used it as a form of security and protection for his people. Think about it a second. Why did the king want upper-class young men? He wanted nobles, people from the king's realm, and other people who were smart and good-looking and cunning from the other tribes. He wanted upper-class people. That's how he viewed that. It was because they had influence. Why else would he pick them? They had influence, and if he could pull this off, he could influence an entire nation into worshiping false gods and probably more importantly, him. That was his goal. He was trying to be disguised as an angel of light, seducing people into the Babylonian culture. He didn't want to be too blunt and obvious about it. He didn't want another war to break out. He just got done destroying some things. The world is trying to do the same for all who follow God because you and I have eternal influence upon our life that is appealing to the lost soul. And if the enemy can take you out of the picture, he can hopefully take others out as well. What he didn't know is that the influence of God on these Hebrew boys was far greater than any influence that any mortal king could possibly have. Just like the influence of God's grace on your heart. So despite suffering or, dis, or despite stuffing them full of, of Chaldean knowledge and science, these young men only got wiser in the ways of God. This is kind of like you guys in school today. There's all this knowledge around some of it's good, some of it's not so good. Evolution, for example. So it, it wasn't a bad thing that they were in this situation. Daniel didn't cut off the flow of knowledge because he knew he could filter through that knowledge. He he knew he could spit out the bones. These are smart kids, okay? Smart kids mixing their knowledge with faith. And so he's taking the knowledge and he's filtering it through the word of God that he knows that is written upon his heart. And we can do the same thing today, even in a secular school system. And we can use that knowledge and leverage it to make the truth that we know to be true stronger and more formidable against all the other doctrines that are out there and all the other people that are trying to stand up against any form of belief in, in, in God or in Jesus or in the resurrection. So we can become more secure in the truth when we have the secular knowledge to compare it with. For example, people who are looking out for for counterfeit money, okay? They don't study the fake money because the fake money is everywhere and it comes in all kinds of different forms. What do they do? They take the $100 bill, they put it under a microscope, and they study it, and they study it, and they study it. They understand and know the truth to the point of they can tell a fake within seconds. Because they know the truth so well. That's how these boys were. They knew the truth so well, they could see the fake in a heartbeat. And that's exactly what they did. The other thing that I would like to pull from this verse that we were just looking at in, in, in verse 19 is the fact that there was an opportunity for comparison. There's an opportunity for comparison. Let me read one verse out of the New Testament for you. Second Corinthians 10, 12. I love this verse. I just found this the other day, and this is incredible. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not what? Wise. Wise. There's comparison for you as clear-cut as, as we could possibly make it. They had an opportunity for comparison. There were many others that were chosen to work in the kingdom. They received the same training. Their names were probably changed as well. They, they were pressured to live the Babylonian lifestyle, just like Daniel and, and his brothers. What well, was different? Four boys didn't cave to cultural pressure around them, and the rest did and they were found to be better than the rest of their peers who willfully caved to the Babylonian culture. That kind of sounds like judgment to me. There are peers all around you, some in this youth, very youth group across the state of Wisconsin, all throughout this movement, and maybe some peers from school and other religious beliefs, but not everyone is going to feel convicted about the same lifestyle principles which is why we cannot get caught up in comparing ourselves. That is a disaster. If these boys got hung up comparing themselves with their peers, they would have fallen prey to the majority, and they would have caved in a heartbeat because they set their standards so low. God should always be your measuring stick, not your peers. When we compare ourselves by ourselves, like this verse says, then we start to stunt our growth because we keep recycling the same information over and over and over again. Ready for this? Here's the information that comes out when we compare ourselves. Not perfect, 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 not perfect. So if we're all not perfect and we're comparing not perfect with not perfect, what's going to happen at the end? We are all going to be not perfect. Why would we do that to ourselves? Why do we fall prey to this trap? It's ridiculous when you break it down to that simple level. It's absolutely ridiculous. God is perfect. That's why God is our measuring stick. God is holy, and I want to honor him with my lifestyle of inward and outward holiness. Be thou perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. One theologian said it like this. This is going to help you with that verse, okay? There's a lot of questions about this verse. How can I be perfect? Ready? It's not about perfection. It's about direction. When you set the standard high, you will always be heading in the right direction. You may not ever be perfect. That's not what God wants. God just wants you to continually be seeking him and heading in his direction. That's what it's about. I don't care what their pastor teaches, what their church culture is like. I'm honoring the voice of my God, my pastor, my youth pastor. If I've got a yes from God and a yes from my pastor, I have security in my faithful submission to authority, and I will continue to grow by the grace of God. Which brings me to a couple of my final thoughts tonight. One of the final points that I would like to conclude with is the wine. Not only did Daniel not choose to eat the king's delicacies, but he wouldn't touch the wine. Wine was not off-limits for Jewish culture. It was not off-limits. Wine was considered kosher, so they could drink wine. The other thing is, it doesn't fall under the second thing that we theorized about with him not eating the delicacies Wine wouldn't have been sacrificed because it's not an animal. Animals, animals were sacrificed for the pagan gods, not wine. So that throws that one out. So it doesn't violate Jewish, Jewish law. It wasn't a part of sacrifices. The other thing is um, it could have been a, a, a very strong fermented wine, and, and maybe he didn't want to take the strong drink. But many times in those days they watered the wine down. And what did the eunuch serve him? Water. He had water. So why didn't he drink the wine? There was no reason, no logical, theological reason for him to not drink the wine. I think it's because he wanted to set the boundary as far back as possible. He wanted to create as much distance. He said, all right, I'm not going to defile with the delicacies, but I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to step all the way back here. And not drink the wine. I that's how much I detest the place and these gods that I'm surrounded by. I want to create as much separation between me and the world as humanly possible. That's another sign that he was not concerned with what everyone else was doing. He did not care. They could have all been denying delicacies. But I guarantee you at that point they would have just went, oh, whatever, it's just wine. We're good. The holiest of all was his standard for personal holiness, not the people around him. All in all, his commitment to Christian discipline was honorable to God, and he found favor with the unbelievers in his life. God gave him favor. Even with Nebuchadnezzar and various other kings, Daniel would rise to very high positions we're going to talk about a lot of this stuff in, in the coming messages from this series. But it gave him increased favor because he was so faithful to his God. It opened up a door to witness and elevate God to a place where people would have to take note of Daniel's God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Which brings us to our final verse tonight. Daniel chapter 1 verse 21. And this is the theme of our series. It says, Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel continued. The whole first chapter just, complaint, just contains a three-year picture of Daniel's life. It's, it's Daniel in exile in a place that's not his home. They've changed his name, and yet Daniel continued. He continued to have faith in his God. He continued being submitted to his God. He continued to live life in a God-honoring way in the midst of so much dishonor. It didn't matter what his friends were doing. It didn't matter the, the pressure to perform and concede to the culture. They could call him every name in the book, but he wasn't fazed by it. He didn't get hung up on what other people could say about him or, or do about him. He controlled what he could control, which is what he was feeding himself, his lifestyle. And he let God take care of the rest. The incredible thing about this is that, yes, he continued, but let's take this as a reference. They gave us something as a reference in this verse. King Cyrus, when you date all the events in Daniel's life. King Cyrus began to rule in 539 BC. What did I say was the beginning of this exile earlier? Does anyone remember? 605. Daniel was approximately around your ages. He was probably 16, 17 somewhere in there. Okay? 605 to 539. 60 more Plus years passed. Daniel was in his late 70s, probably 80s, and he's still upholding this lifestyle. It was truly a lifestyle. He was fully 100% committed to living for God. And the question I want to leave you with tonight is are you? Are you 100% committed to living a life that honors God? Let's stand. We're not going to do some big time of prayer. Let's just stand. and let's just, let's just think a moment about what we've heard tonight. What are the lifestyle changes that you can make this week? What is one lifestyle change that you can make this week? Well, I can't really think of one. Great. You're not partaking of the king's delicacies. What represents the wine in your life? What represents that? Where is something where I can maybe create a little more separation? The definite, very definition of holiness. To be separate. How can, I, how can I separate myself more from this culture? What's one change that I can make in, in, in a way that I can honor God? Lord Jesus, thank you for this night. Thank you for the word. Lord, we don't deserve to be here. We don't deserve to even be able to teach and and be taught and learn these things. But God, you have provided it for us by your grace and your mercy. And we are so grateful for this opportunity. We're so grateful for the word that you have given us. And God, I just pray that you would open up every heart, mind, and soul under the sound of my voice that we would receive this tonight, that we would pray about it, that we would take it into consideration in our personal relationship with you, and that we would strive to live life under your rule and under your perfection with you as the standard and not others. In Jesus' name we pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for all things. Amen.